confused about commentaries, lost in the law, longing for a deeper understanding of God's word, join us as we continue to explore Romans on this episode of The Zonecast. You're listening to The Zonecast, alive in the word. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Zonecast, the show where we take a deep dive into God's living and active word every fortnight with a variety of wonderful guests. And we really have a treat in store for you today as we look at the second half of Romans 2 with Reverend Peter Lalleman of Spurgeon's College, who'll be helping us get to grips with the law and Paul and how we should read the law today in the light of the gospel So if you have a Bible nearby, you're going to want to turn to Romans 2, verse 17. And let's get straight into God's Word today. In Romans 2, verse 17, Paul writes, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, If you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that the people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people but from God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living and active word, which is light and life to us, God, and which instructs us in the way that we should live our lives. God, we pray that the transforming power of your Holy Spirit will touch our hearts today and renew our minds and help us to follow Jesus more deeply and devotedly in our lives. Amen. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Peter Lalleman. Um, Peter, you're a tutor in biblical studies at Spurgeon's, and you taught me and many other students training for ministry and also studying theology. Uh, You're a Baptist minister, uh, a published author in Dutch and English, writing books, amongst other things, on Revelation and Acts, and most recently a book called The Hidden Unity of the Bible, which I think we'll touch on later, which looks at the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And you're also an editor of um, different multi-author volumes and, um, and specifically the European Journal of Theology. Uh, also, your wonderful wife, Hetty, who also taught me at college, is an academic specialising in the Old Testament. 
Um, maybe, Peter, you could start by just telling us a bit about what life has been like in lockdown for you and for the college life in general as well. Like uh, all churches, the college is closed, and that means that we only see the students virtually, which is really a change because the college is normally a community, so we miss the direct contact with the students. Teaching is going on online, and we're expecting that even in the new year from September, we'll do uh, many things online. Um, but a, a medium like Zoom is very helpful, very effective, so we can teach, we can be in touch with the students, and uh, it's working. Yeah, brilliant. And so you're still you're still um, uh, ready to welcome students in the new academic year as well? Oh, yes. At this moment, uh, we have open days, again, online, virtual open days, open evenings. And so people can apply and uh, we're going to accept as many people as we can. Fantastic. And uh, we'll also try and include a link in the show notes to, to the college open days for anyone who might be listening who's interested in that. Um, I, I remember um, my time at Spurgeon's College very fondly. And um, I remember you teaching us in our, in our first year studying theology about commentaries and how, how to use them. Uh, could you give an introduction for our listeners about, um, about commentaries, maybe for those who haven't ever used them before uh, and why they're uh, such a rich resource and talk maybe about a few on Romans that you think could be helpful? The Bible is not an easy book. And uh, for a very long time, people have been writing books that explain the Bible. And these things are called commentaries. What most commentaries do is that they go through uh, a part of the Bible or just one book of the Bible and they take it bit by bit or sometimes even verse by verse and they explain what it meant to the original readers like the original readers of Romans in Rome and they then also say what it might mean for us and the Bible commentaries in all shapes and sizes uh, as you probably know the Bible wasn't originally written in um, English but in Hebrew or in Greek and so some commentaries go into these original texts and explain the original words. Other commentaries just focus on the English text. And those will be the commentaries that are most useful for uh, people hearing this. Um, but even then, you get commentaries that are bigger and smaller. And I guess people should go for something that they can understand uh, well, so they don't have to study the commentary in order to make sense of it. A very popular series is by Tom Wright, who is a well-known author anyway. And Tom Wright has this series for everyone. And there's a um, Romans there is in two volumes, Paul for everyone, Romans, and then first chapters 1 to 8 and then 9 to 16. And uh, chunk by chunk, Tom Wright uh, gives you a contemporary kind of story which links in with what Paul is trying to say in Romans. If people want something a bit bigger, but, but not more difficult, just... Uh, nicely illustrated with diagrams and all that. There's a book by Douglas Moo called Encountering the Book of Romans. But that's just two of the commentaries on Romans. There are probably uh, more commentaries on Romans than I could fit into my office here in the college uh, because Romans is a very popular book and everybody has tried to explain it. Yeah, wonderful. Now, that's really helpful. We'll, we'll again put links to those commentaries um, in the show notes today. Um, I'm particularly fond of, um, uh, of Tom Wright's uh, Bible for Everyone. It's a great introduction, I think, for people who are, yeah, who are looking to get uh, deeper in the word. Um, when we come into Paul and Romans chapter 2, um, Paul seems to have 
it could seem Paul has a complex relationship with the law. Uh, I think anyone who reads Paul might get the impression sometimes that he sees the law in negative terms. Is that is that really the case? I mean, I know you've written a book on the lasting value of the Old Testament for Christians, and your wife Hetty has a book on um, celebrating the law. Maybe you could um, just speak a bit about the relevance of the law for Christians and how we should read it today. Paul is not negative about the law, but Paul is anxious that people will use the law in the right way. And uh, he's clearly aware that many Jewish people had not been doing that. Um, Paul sees everything in the perspective of Jesus. And so Paul is saying to everybody, including the Romans, that now that Jesus has come and uh, prepared the way to, uh, to God for us, Jesus is the one to follow and Jesus is the one to believe in. And that means that the law is now not the road for us to get to God, to get to Christ, uh, to do good works, but it's our faith in Jesus that saves us. And the law then needs to take a step back. And the law is just there to guide us in our Christian lives once we are believers. Um, And in fact, it should have been the same in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant as well. God, first of all, elected the people of Israel and he started with them. He made a covenant with them. And he said, I'm your God. I love you. I um, freed you from slavery in Egypt. Okay, so here's my covenant. And now, so that you stay within that covenant, here are my my rules, my laws. And and, uh, the law then, the word law always is a bit difficult. It's better to say something like guidance, guidelines for life. But they, they come in the Old Testament after God has done all these positive things for Israel. And then the law comes, and that's how people can then live as God's people. And as an example, uh, something very attractive, a kind of a lighthouse for the rest of the world. Similar for us, you don't become a Christian by keeping the law. God doesn't accept you because you're a a nice law-abiding citizen. But for a proper life, Uh, in the kingdom of God and a proper life in society, there are rules and guidelines. And that's where God has given us the best guidelines because he knows us and he knows his creation, he knows this world, so he knows what is good for us. And if you read the law in that perspective, uh, it's still very useful. Now, of course, not everything, every rule in the Old Testament still applies to us. For example, the whole idea of sacrifices now is no longer necessary because Jesus brought the perfect sacrifice. But other things in the law about being good to one another and looking after uh, widows and orphans and aliens, uh, strangers, etc., these things are still uh, very useful and just as applicable now as they were in the Old Testament times. So it's always first rescue and salvation and then and then kind of obedience to following God and his ways, both in the Old Testament and and the New Testament. Yeah, um, God, first of all, tells people you're in, you're my covenant people, I love you. Oh, yeah, and it would be nice if, as a consequence, you then uh, live a life accordingly. So it's not us earning anything, it's not us deserving something, but it's us showing our gratitude to God for what he did for us. And then living in a way that's good for ourselves and and good for uh, the people around us. As we turn to today's passage, um, you know, we we saw in last week's episode at the beginning of chapter two how Paul 
really tries to level the playing field, as it were, between Jews and Gentiles regarding the judgment of God and the need for the gospel. And he says it's, it's not the possessing of the law that counts, but the doing of it. Um, but in the passage we've read today, he really seems to step up the rhetoric, you know, particularly in verses 17 to 24. And, um, and there's these um, seeming accusations of, of stealing and robbing temples. Um, why is Paul speaking in such strong terms here? And, and what's his main contention? I think the problem that Paul uh, is countering here is the fact that many Jewish people found it very difficult to accept that Gentiles were now also included in the people of God and that the coming of Jesus had taken away the, this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. Suddenly, the Jews are not the only uh, privileged people anymore, but Gentiles have been accepted in as well. And then Jews say, hey, uh, but we are the people who have the law, we are law-abiding citizens, law-abiding uh, children of God. How about those Gentiles? They're not even circumcised. Um, how can that be? And Paul then says, yeah, but you Jewish people, you've not always done this well anyway. And um, you have the privilege of having the law. But if you don't obey the law, then it's, it's no good to you. And you come under the criticism that uh, was already leveled at you by the Old Testament prophets who criticized Israel for not abiding by the law and, and being a rather wayward people. Yeah, and I mean, that, that phrase about, um, you know, that we sometimes use today about practicing what you preach, that seems to really be um, what Paul is, is, is getting at here, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Paul says, if you think that you are so good, then you should really be living a very perfect life and you're clearly not doing that. Um, no wonder nobody does that, but it just means that you are not going to deserve your status as the people of God by, by keeping the law. Yes. In terms of today, I mean, hypocrisy is, is something that's often a, a challenge um, that's, that's kind of can be leveled at the church. Um, you know, Jesus spoke out of, about the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees. And, um, and we often fail to meet our own standards, let alone God's. Um, you've always got these stories, haven't you, of, of people falling from grace, as it's often called. And I'm not sure that's the best expression. Um, sometimes widely respected figures, and that can cause disillusionment in the church. And, and I guess God's name to be blasphemed, as, as Paul goes on to speak about here. So these charges that Paul levies against the Jewish teachers are often levied against the church too. How how do how should we respond to these stories as God's people, and what can we what can we learn? And um, you know, if someone today is feeling struggling with attention in their own life, and they feel um, like a hypocrite themselves, and like they're unable to live out what God has has called them to um, to do, you know, what would you have to say to them? That's a long, big question, and I did not become a politician because I always struggled with questions in more than one part. So I'll say a few things, and then you come back if you want to hear more. Uh, the thing to be aware of as a, a Christian is that you're not leading a perfect life either, and that you're not a member of the church or in any other position because you're so good and you so deserve things. But it's all out of grace and it's all because of what the Lord Jesus did for us and before us and just without our own involvement. So we stand by grace and that means that uh, we need to have due humility and to say, yeah, we didn't deserve anything. Uh, we've just been given this by God and, and we happily accepted it. 
uh, I often use the uh, imagery of a beggar. Uh, we are beggars, and uh, we are in a situation where one beggar can show the other beggar where they find uh, food, but it doesn't make us any more than that. And clearly, the Jewish people had a bit of a struggle with that. They had been God's elected for a long time, and many of them felt superior to other people, other nations. And Paul is saying, no, you're not superior. You have just been saved by grace and um, you have to stay very close to the Lord Jesus uh, in order to, to stay in. And it's the same with us. We have to rely 100% on Jesus and not at all on our own achievements. But of course, when the church was rich and powerful in, in past centuries, the church had a kind of potential like, oh yeah, we've made it, we are okay. And they could look down on people outside. Yeah, and, and I know that many, many people, I suppose it's particularly prominent in Baptist theology, that there's a warning against the church getting into a powerful position because actually we, um, I think all people don't carry power particularly well. Um, and it can kind of go to go to our heads and can and twist the way that we view others. Um, so it's confidence in God's goodness towards us and his grace shown towards us in Jesus. And it's humility as we as we as we walk with him and we try to follow him. Um, I, I guess when we read Romans two, what you're saying is we have to be very aware that Romans three is coming. And um, and, you know, it says we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but we're all justified freely by the grace in in Jesus and that's we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus um, not on ourselves yeah and and I like the expression that you used yourself a moment ago about Paul leveling the playing field here in Romans 2 he is showing the Jewish people that they're not better than people from a Gentile background and the fact that they have the law and have these other privileges does not in themselves in itself um, save them but it's the grace of God and therefore the Jewish people depend on the grace of God just as much as Christians from a Gentile background and in our day and age that means that say we Christians here in the West uh, depend on God's grace just as much as um, people in uh, the majority world who have not been Christians for such a long time uh, but we are in no way better than they are. We have no privileges over them, apart from all the money and, and the scholarship that we have amassed. But these things will not save us. Let's move on to verse 24, uh, which is a quotation from the Old Testament. And um, and we said at the beginning, you've recently written a book about the use of the Old Testament in the New. I wonder if you could comment a, a bit more about that generally, and then actually dig into why Paul uses this particular quote here for us and what it might mean for those first century Jewish believers when they heard those words. The use of the Old Testament in the New is something which has very many aspects. And I've written 300 pages on it and I've only scratched the surface. Uh, so I introduced the book by saying that I'll give loads of examples of what happens in the New Testament, how they use the Old Testament, how incredibly important it is. But if you want to cover everything there, then you're going to write a book that's too big, too heavy to carry. So I give interesting examples in the book. I sometimes defend what happens in the New Testament because sometimes the accusation is that uh, the use of the Old Testament is rather arbitrary. And I show that it's not arbitrary, but it does take the context into account. It does take uh, relevant things into account, even if we, uh, from our modern perspective, can't see these things. 
one thing that um, struck me, uh, which I knew but wasn't so fully aware of, is that when um, New Testament authors use the old, they do not only uh, refer to promises about the Messiah, about the, the Savior that would come, that are fulfilled in Jesus. But I also see that um, there are things in the Old Testament that refer to the church, that are relevant for uh, the church. And also, Paul sees that certain things in the Old Testament refer to him and his ministry. And so in Isaiah, there's this verse which talks about being a light to the nations. And Paul does not just apply that to Jesus, but Paul applies it to his own ministry. And I found that fascinating. So the use of the Old Testament is much broader than just focused on the Lord Jesus. It's also focused on the church and the ministry of the uh, apostles and the evangelists. Brilliant. And this this particular verse, this is a this is an Isaiah quote, isn't it, that, that Paul is using here. Um, yeah, what, what's um, in this particular context, what's Paul trying? What's the point Paul's trying to get a get across? Well, you sometimes wonder why Paul takes a particular verse and not others, not others, and he could have used um, other verses as well. Basically, what Paul is doing is um, criticizing Jewish people here and then thinking, hmm, I might just as well back that up with uh, a word from the Old Testament, from one of their authoritative prophets. And so he finds Isaiah, Isaiah, who is the most quoted uh, person in the New Testament anyway. Um, and that tells us that what Paul is doing here is very similar to what many prophets in the Old Testament did, which is uh, criticize Israel for not living up to uh, God's demands for the way God wanted them to live. Uh, it's not just Isaiah, but it's uh, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, who point out the people of Israel that it's not enough to have a nice uh, worship service in the temple and to sing beautiful songs, uh, but you're supposed also to look after the poor in the country and to uh, have fair justice and all these things. So Paul, in fact, lines himself up with the Old Testament prophets as another prophet, uh, a New Testament prophet, criticizing uh, people of God for um, yeah, not living as God wanted them to live. Yeah, that prophetic voice is, is never um, necessarily a, a popular one. Um, and takes quite boldness to to speak out. I guess I guess in the same way that the prophets were treated in the Old Testament, there would have been a lot of people whose um, whose cages were rattled a bit by Paul, and um, and who who potentially didn't take kindly to the challenge that he um, he levied against them. You know, as a church, it's how can we faithfully pursue a kind of a prophetic call as the people of God today? Do you think? That's a difficult ministry. A prophetic ministry is always difficult. Uh, you yourself already say that uh, the prophets were never very popular and Paul wasn't very popular in certain circles. So you definitely need to uh, be ready to suffer for what you're going to do and you're not going to make yourself popular. But having said that, um, the prophets were always people uh, from within the nation. So they were themselves Jewish people. Paul himself is a Jew. And so they were entitled to criticize the people that they criticized. It wasn't outsiders coming in and, and uh, waving a finger or something. So if we want to have a prophetic critical ministry, we need to be fully part of the church, fully involved in it, get our hands dirty in it. And that then 
um, gives us a certain right to criticize things that we see which are not okay. But then to say, we're in all this together, it's not just uh, me who knows better and I'll tell you, um, but we as a church should be doing things better. We as a church have not uh, defended the poor. We've not always done enough for uh, justice in this world, for refugees, for people in poorer countries. So let us do more about this. Uh, the solidarity um, aspect is very important if you want to be an effective prophet. Yeah, and actually, I'm reminded about, you know, I think in the New Testament, when you see Paul praying, he says all of his his best and his deepest and his most earnest prayers for the church. And and I guess everything that he's everything that he says is out of love for the church um, and a real heart for the people who he's who he's calling to faithful obedience to God, um, which I guess is a yeah is a vital aspect that if it's not done out of love, um, then it's like a, a clanging cymbal or a resounding gong or an unpleasant um, sound that's dissonant to what you know God really wants. Yeah, and uh, the same is true for Paul's attitude towards the Jewish people, where he shows this real anguish that many Jewish people have not accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And, and Paul tries to win them over, and he's desperate for them to come uh, to faith in Jesus as well. And, and his whole life is dedicated to showing uh, the Jewish people how good it would be if they accepted Jesus. And um, from that perspective, he can then criticize them, but he, he really shows in all these respects that he is one of them. And, and talking about how he was one of them, I mean, um, elsewhere, doesn't he? Paul says, you know, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He speaks about his his former life, as he as he mentions it in Judaism. And um, and in verse 25, Paul writes about circumcision specifically. We've already spoken about um, the law and, and the covenants and started to dig into that. But Actually, throughout the New Testament, there seems to be a bit of a debate that rages about circumcision, um, right from Acts um, and through many of Paul's letters. Why is circumcision such a such a controversial subject in, in the New Testament? Well, if people want to understand that, the best thing really to do is to read Acts 15, uh, which is a rather clear description of what happened at that moment. Um, the Jewish people said, the Jewish Christians said, Mm, we are surprised that Gentiles are now admitted into the people of God. Uh, but clearly, uh, in order to be a proper member of the people of God, you need to be circumcised. For the Jews at that time, circumcision just was the sign of uh, being in the people of God. A little bit like baptism is for us, although we are probably much easier about baptism, most of us at least, uh, than these Jews were about circumcision. But that was really the sign of admission to the people of God. So when Gentiles came to faith in Jesus, these Jewish Christians said, yeah, that's fine, but you have to be circumcised. Which then would have been an incredible barrier for um, people with a Gentile background to become Christians. And uh, that wouldn't have been an effective way at all. Uh, which means that Paul and Barnabas and others in Antioch then stand up against this and say, no, circumcision is not a condition for being part of the people of God, because the people of God is now much wider, and it's no longer characterized by men being circumcised. And in Acts 15, you see that uh, Paul then wins the day with his arguments, and, and the church in Jerusalem uh, admits that circumcision is not so important. 
But in certain places in the New Testament, you see that that was a difficult point for um, Jewish Christians, especially in Galatians. So the whole letter of Galatians is written by Paul the moment he hears that people have come to Galatia and told the new Christians there that they need to be circumcised. And Paul thinks, oh, no, here we go again. Or here we go for the first time. We don't know exactly when Galatians was written. Um, but that was a threat that all the time Jewish Christians wanted Christians from a gentle background to be circumcised. And Paul and others say, no, 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 this is not a condition. And um, you hear a bit of a reflection of that here in Romans. It's probably not a real issue in Romans. But here Paul says, well, yeah, it's fine if you're circumcised, but it doesn't really help you very much. In modern terms, uh, talking to Baptists, it's okay if you've been baptized. But if the next thing you do is... is um, rob your neighbor or uh, kill a migrant or, or um, cheat the taxman, then what was the value of baptism? So uh, it's not about outward signs like circumcision or baptism. It's about how seriously, seriously you live your life with Christ. Yeah, that's a really um, that's a really helpful comparison between circumcision and baptism. I I read um, in a commentary that um, one strand of Jewish thought at the time that was going round was that they that some some Jewish people were saying it's impossible for someone who's been circumcised to then um, you know pass down into Gehenna, and um, you know that that thought of how that sign could avoid you know be a, a, a kind of a get out of Gehenna free card. Um, I did think that was a bit harsh on women, um, <laughs> but uh, but in terms of in terms of baptism, I guess there's been points in church history where there's almost been a, a similar, almost superstitious um, feeling about baptism that it's um, that it can somehow exempt the, um, the the participant from from judgment in that sense. Yeah, there's always a danger with these outward things uh, that people pride themselves on them and think, oh, if only um, I have this or I have that, if only I have been baptized, then I'm okay. But we could already have learned from the Old Testament that it never works like that. Uh, priding yourself on being a Jew or an Israelite was never enough. Uh, you needed to live accordingly. Um, again, I refer to Amos, where Amos says, oh, please stop singing all your worship songs and look after the poor and the, and the infants. The, the, um, sorry, look after the, the widows and the orphans, because that's much more important than singing all your songs. So um, a modern comparison might be that people say, oh, yeah, but we've been composing all these nice worship songs. Have we, we've been worshipping you for long evenings. We've all these worship services. And God might say, hmm, but who were the people outside? And uh, what did you do for the homeless people? And did you feed the, them? And, and why were food banks needed in the first place in this rich country? Mm. So outward things can always be um, tokens and always be things that we hide ourselves behind and then not do the things that are really important. Yeah, yeah. And and Paul goes on uh, to speak about that, doesn't he? Um, we'll, we'll touch on that. I, I mean, I think just just, um, just backtracking a bit, because it links into what we were talking about with the law at the beginning, um, with the covenants, um, with the consistency, actually, between the Old Testament and the New Testament in this respect. Um, but 
just to clear up, because Paul, his emphasis here really is about obedience and works in this chapter. He speaks about judgment um, according to works earlier on. And just to clear up in case there's any misunderstanding um, from any of our listeners, how is that emphasis on obedience consistent with his overall argument for justification by faith? Well, Paul talks about obedience here and, and um, as it were, deserving your salvation because that was the approach that he felt was uh, current amongst the Jews. And he also saw a bit of a, a danger of that amongst the Gentiles. And so Paul is first of all saying that this is a dead-end road. This is a cul-de-sac. Um, if you want to go in that direction um, and if you want to... Uh, pride yourself on your obedience, it's not going to work. Which means that in Romans 2 and the beginning of 3, he shows that these things are not going to work and that people really, instead of that, need the Lord Jesus and need to believe in him and uh, expect their salvation from him rather than from their own good deeds, their own good works. In that sense, 2 and 3 show these these dead-end rows, these cul-de-sacs, before then, In the second half of chapter 3, Paul comes up with uh, the answer, which is that we are now justified by faith in Jesus alone. So good works can't save us, religion can't save us, we need a saviour. But then through him we can actually live lives that are are pleasing to God. And we can, as you were saying earlier, um, you know, care for the homeless and feed the poor and have a heart for those who are outside and that our faith, our newfound faith then actually starts to run deeper and transform our, our our entire lives in that sense. Yeah, that is the natural effect, the desired effect, once you know the Lord Jesus, once you uh, have been filled by his love. And that's what Paul expects. But we do need to remind ourselves of these things from time to time. And the danger has been for Christians and still is, that people say, okay, now I've been saved, uh, I've got the Lord Jesus in my heart, so it doesn't matter what I do anymore. And uh, Paul will go on uh, in the rest of Romans and in his other letters to say, no, that's not uh, what salvation by faith alone was meant for. Yeah, by no, by no means. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 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 so Paul, when he speaks then, and we've started to touch on this, he says, um, he speaks about someone who is a Jew inwardly, as opposed to outwardly. Um, so h- how does that, yeah, what's Paul talking about there, and how does that then relate to our lives today and the way God looks on, on us as believers? Well, what Paul means is that um, being a Jew outwardly uh, normally was that you were circumcised, so you had this visible sign in your body, and you might think, oh, everything is okay. But Paul says, no, it's not okay. Your hearts need to be circumcised as well, which basically means you need uh, a new heart, you need to be born again, you need to live a life of faith. In our situation, people would say, oh, well, I'm a member of a church, I've got a membership certificate here, Uh, I pay my money to the church. Uh, A Baptist might say, oh, I've been baptised, and therefore everything is okay. And Paul will say, no. It's not in any of these outward signs, any of these outward things. It's about what goes on in your heart and whether the Lord Jesus really lives in your heart, whether the Holy Spirit really works in you inwardly, renews you. And that will then show in the things you do. 
to uh, your neighbors and to the people in the rest of the world. Mm, yeah, I, I kind of think about when Jesus um, spoke to the Pharisees and he, he called, kind of called them whitewashed tombs. And, um, you know, that actually we can put out an excellent outward display, but God looks on the heart. Um, and, you know, as you say, like that, that need for a new heart, I guess it's emphasized, isn't it, in, in, in Ezekiel and in the Old Testament prophets too. And Paul's carrying on that, that same consistent message to Jewish believers in Rome. Um, what, what would you say um, to, a, to a Christian who's listening and is thinking, actually, do you know what my, I think my life is, is inconsistent with my faith and I feel like I have, um, I have drifted away or I'm really struggling in a particular area. You know, maybe it's a particular sin and how do I, yeah, how do I, how do I overcome that? How do I ensure that I'm, I'm faithfully following Jesus and that this is, you know, I'm really, I'm really walking this walk that I speak of. There are quite a few things that, that you could say. I'll, I'll just say a few. Um, I would say focus on Jesus again. Focus not on external things like church membership or the, the things you do, how uh, you feel in yourself, but do focus on the Lord Jesus and the fact that he loves you, that he gave gave his life for you and then live your life as a life of uh, gratitude to him for what he did and and ask this uh, question that was so popular a while ago what would Jesus do in all kinds of situations live a life that's just as loving as his as forgiving as his as uh, generous as his as hospitable as his not to uh, deserve his grace but to show that you have received that grace and that forgiveness and, and show your, your thankfulness in that way if people really struggle with a particular sin that could be uh, something pretty difficult and uh, people then may need help for that from uh, a pastor or a social worker or a combination of people uh, if people struggle with a sin and it doesn't go away so quickly then there might be more that needs to be done um, which doesn't make them worse Christians. Some people just have a particular problem in their life. And um, there are good Christian people, but even secular people, who can help people to overcome particular sins if, if that is the case. That's, that's really helpful. I, I mean, I particularly love that, just that first comment about focusing on Jesus, because I guess that's, that's kind of Paul's whole aim here, is to take the focus off Jew or Gentile or off, off themselves or off their own righteousness or their own works or their own walk and say, actually, you've got to look to Jesus because we need, we, we desperately need him. We need to rely on him. He's our, he's our saviour. We all need this grace. Um, and um, yeah, and really helpful just to, yeah, just again to emphasise that, you know, when people are struggling that, you know, the last thing God wants is for us to be burdened by shame and, and guilt um, to an extent that it causes us to isolate ourselves away from fellow Christians who can walk with us um you know and help us in those situations and and ultimately reaching out to God himself um for help um Peter I wonder if um, just on that you could just um you could just finish by by praying for us praying for those listening um and our and our walk that for that circumcision of the heart and that um that yeah, that our walk with Jesus in light of everything we've looked at today. Okay, let us pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been saved by grace, not by any achievements of our own, but by what you did for us through the Lord Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. We thank you for his death. We also thank you for his resurrection and that he now lives with you and for your power that is available in our lives. Help us, Father, to live lives of thankfulness to you for what you have done for us, which would mean that we would be good to the people around us and to this whole world. Help us, Lord, to understand that it's not by our own achievements, not by any merits of our own, whether we have a Jewish background or a Gentile background or what, Lord, it's your grace that saves us. We pray particularly for those who struggle to lead a Christian life, people who might be addicted, people who might have other real problems in their lives, and we pray that they will seek help to be freed from whatever might hold them. We thank you that they're still very valuable in your sight, that you still love them. And we thank you that there is so much help available these days. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you and we ask that you help us to focus on the Lord Jesus in our Christian life day by day. And in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, that was a great interview with Peter, and it takes us to the end of a tricky chapter, perhaps. Next time, we're going to be exploring Romans chapter 3, which is a really key passage in the letter and in Paul's presentation of the gospel with so much to get stuck into. In the meantime, please do get in touch if you want to. You can email me at mark at thezonecast.com and you can keep connected with us via our Facebook page. Remember, it's Zone without an E. We particularly want to hear from you if you have any questions um, or perhaps feedback on the show. Um, until then, keep yourself rooted in the Bible. Uh, may you find all that you need and more in Jesus and know the blessing of your Heavenly Father during this season. Uh, and may the Word of God dwell in you. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Zonecast, brought to you by Willsborough Baptist Church, Ashford. For more information or to get in contact, find us on Facebook at The Zonecast or visit www.willsboroughbaptist.church.